I hold in my hand a first edition copy of the Book of Mormon. It was printed in 1830 on a hand-operated letterpress at the E.B. Granton Company in the village of Palmyra, New York. In June of 1829, Joseph Smith, then 23 years old, and uh, in company with uh, Martin Harris, the local farmer, visited Mr. Grandin at his press. Mr. Grandin, three months earlier, had advertised his intent to publish books. Joseph Smith provided pages of a handwritten manuscript. If the content of the book did not doom it to remain obscure, the account of where it came from certainly would. Imagine an angel directing a teenage boy to the woods where he found buried a stone vault and a set of golden plates. The writings on the plate were translated by use of a Urim and Thummim, which is referred to a number of times in the Old Testament and described by Hebrew scholars as an instrument whereby revelation was given and truth declared. Before the book was off the press, pages of it were stolen and printed in the local newspaper, accompanied by ridicule. Opposition was destined to excite mobs to kill the Prophet Joseph Smith and drive those who believed him into the wilderness. From that very unlikely beginning to this day, 108,936,922 copies of the Book of Mormon and Other Testament of Jesus Christ have been printed. It has been published in 62 languages, with selections of it in another 37 languages and 22 more language translations are in process. Now, 60,000 full-time missionaries in 162 countries pay their own way to devote two years of their lives to testify that the Book of Mormon is true. For generations, it has inspired those who read it. Herbert Schreiter had read this German translation of the Book of Mormon. In it he read, when you receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truth of all things. Herbert Schreider tested the promise and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In 1946, released as a prisoner of war, Herbert returned to his wife and three little daughters in Leipzig, Germany. Soon thereafter, he went as a missionary to Bernburg, Germany. Alone and without a companion, he sat cold and hungry in a room, wondering how he should begin. He thought of what he had to offer this war-devastated people. He printed by hand a placard which read, Will there be a further life after death? and posted it on a wall. About that same time, a family from a small village in Poland came to Berenberg. Manfred Schutze was four years old. His father had been killed in the war. 
his mother with his grandparents and his mother's sister, also a widow, and her two little girls, were forced to evacuate their village with only 30 minutes' notice. They grabbed what they could and headed west. Manfred and his mother pulled and pushed a small cart. At times, the ailing grandfather rode in the cart. One Polish officer looked at the pathetic little Manfred and began to weep. At the border, soldiers ransacked their belongings and threw their bedding into the river. Manfred and his mother were then separated from the family. His mother wondered if they might have gone to Berenberg, where her grandmother was born, perhaps to relatives there. After weeks of unbelievable suffering, they arrived in Berenberg and found the family. The seven of them lived together in one small room, but their troubles were not over. The mother of the two little girls died. The grieving grandmother cried out for a preacher and asked, Will I see my family again? The preacher answered, My dear lady, there is no such thing as the resurrection. They who are dead are dead. They wrapped the body in a paper bag for burial. On the way from the grave, the grandfather talked of taking their own lives, as many others had done. Just then they saw the placard that Elder Schreider had posted on the building. Is there further life after death with an invitation from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? At a meeting, they learned of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. The book explains the purpose of mortal life and death, the certainty of life after death, what happens when the Spirit leaves the body, the description of the resurrection, how to receive and retain a remission of your sins, what hold justice and mercy may have on you, what to pray for, priesthood, covenants and ordinances, the office and ministry of angels, the still, small voice of revelation, and preeminently the mission of Jesus Christ, and many other jewels that make up the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They joined the Church. Soon their lives changed. The grandfather found work as a baker and could provide bread for his family and also for Elder Schreider, who had given them the bread of life. Then help came from the Church in the United States. Manfred grew up eating grain out of little sacks with a picture of a beehive on them and peaches from California. He wore clothes from the welfare supplies of the Church. Soon after I was released from the Air Force, I went to the welfare mill at Kaysville, Utah, to help fill bags of wheat for shipment to the starving people in Europe. I like to think. One of the bags of grain that I filled myself went to Manfred Schutze and his mother. If not, it went to others in equal need. Elder Dieter Uchtdorf, who sits with us on the stand today as one of the seventy, remembers this, to this very day the smell of the grain and the feel of it in his little boy hands. Perhaps one of the bags I filled reached his family. When I was about ten, I made my first attempt to read the Book of Mormon. It was, at first, easy-flowing New Testament language. 
Then I came to the writings of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I could not understand them. I found them difficult to read. I laid the book aside. I made other attempts to read the Book of Mormon. I did not read it all until I was on a troop ship with other bomber crew members headed for the war in the Pacific. I determined that I would read the Book of Mormon and find out for myself whether it is true or not. Carefully I read and reread the book. I tested the promise that it contained. That was a life-changing event. After that, I never set the book aside. Many young people have done better than I did. A 15-year-old son of a mission president attended high school with very few members of the Church. One day the class was given a true-false test. Matthew was confident that he knew the answers to all except for question 15. It read, Joseph Smith, the alleged Mormon prophet, wrote the Book of Mormon. True or false? He could not answer it either way. So being a clever teenager, he rewrote the question. He crossed out the word alleged and replaced the word wrote with translated. It then read, Joseph Smith the Mormon prophet translated the Book of Mormon. He marked it true and handed it in. <laughs> the next day, the teacher sternly asked why he had changed the question. He smiled and said, because Joseph Smith did not write the Book of Mormon, he translated it, and he was not an alleged prophet. He was a prophet. He was then invited to tell the class how he knew that. In England, my wife and I became acquainted with Dorothy James, the widow of a clergyman who lived at the close of Winchester Cathedral. She brought out a family Bible, which was lost for many years. Years before, the possessions of a family member had been sold. The new owner found the Bible in a small desk that had remained unopened for over 20 years. There were also some letters written by a child named Beaumont James. He was able to find the James family and return the long-lost Bible. On the title page, my wife read the following note written down. This Bible has been in our family since the time of Thomas James in 1683, who was a lineal descendant of Thomas James, first librarian of the Bodleian Library at Oxford, who was buried in New College Chapel, August 1629, signed C.T.C. James, 1880. The margins and the open pages were completely filled with notations written in English, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. One entry particularly touched her. From the bottom of the title page, she read, The fairest impression of the Bible is to have it well printed on the reader's heart. And then this quote from Corinthians, Ye are our epistle, written in our own heart, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but in the Spirit of the living God, not in the tables of stone, but in the fleshy table of the heart. My Book of Mormon also has many notes and margins and is very heavily underlined. I was in Florida once with President Hinckley. 
He turned from the pulpit and asked for a copy of the scripture. I handed him my copy. He thumbed through it for a few seconds and turned and handed it back saying, I can't read this. You've got everything crossed out. (laughs) Amos prophesied of a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. In a world ever more dangerous than the world of little Manfred Schutze and Dieter Uchtdorf, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, has the nourishing power to heal starving spirits of the world. Manfred Schutze is now a member of the Third Quorum of Seventy and supervises our seminaries in Eastern Europe. His mother, now 88, still attends the temple at Freiburg, where Herbert Schreider once served as a counselor to the president. With Elder Walter F. Gonzalez, a new member of the Seventy from Uruguay, I attended conference in Moroni, Utah, a town with the Book of Mormon name. There's no doctor or dentist in Moroni. They must leave town to shop for groceries. Their students are bused to a consolidated high school across the valley. We held a meeting with 236 present. Lest Elder Gonzalez see only ordinary rural farmers, I gave this sentence of testimony. I know the gospel is true and that Jesus is the Christ. I asked if someone could repeat it in Spanish. Several hands went up. Could someone repeat it in another language? It was repeated in Japanese, Spanish, German, Portuguese, Russian, Chinese, Tongan, Italian, Tagalog, Dutch, Finnish, Maori, Polish, Korean, and French. Fifteen languages. Again in English. I know the gospel is true and that Jesus is the Christ. I love this Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Study it and one can understand both the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. I know it is true. In this 1830 Book of Mormon, printed by 23-year-old Egbert B. Grandin for 23-year-old Joseph Smith, Jr., I read from page 105. We talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for the remission of their sins. And that, I assure you, is exactly what we do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Years ago, when Sister Nelson and I had several teenaged daughters, we took our family on a vacation far away from telephones and boyfriends. We went on a raft trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. As we started our journey, we had no idea how dangerous this trip could be. The first day was beautiful. But on the second day, when we approached Horn Creek Rapids and saw that precipitous drop ahead, I was terrified. 
Floating on a rubber raft, our precious family was about to plunge over a waterfall. Instinctively, I put one arm around my wife and the other around our youngest daughter. To protect them, I tried to hold them close to me. But as we reached the precipice, the bended raft became a giant sling and shot me into the air. I landed into the roiling rapids of the river. I had a hard time coming up. Each time I tried to find air, I hit the underside of the raft. My family couldn't see me, but I could hear them shouting, Daddy, where's Daddy? I finally found the side of the raft and rose to the surface. The family pulled my nearly drowned body out of the water. We were thankful to be safely reunited. The next several days were pleasant and delightful. Then came the last day when we were to go over Lava Falls, known as the most dangerous drop of the journey. When I saw what was ahead, I immediately asked to beach the raft and hold an emergency family council meeting, (laughs) knowing that if we were to survive this experience, we needed to plan carefully. I reasoned with our family. No matter what happens, the rubber raft will remain on top of the water. If we cling with all our might to ropes secured to the raft, we can make it. Even if the raft should capsize, we will be all right if we hang tightly to the ropes. I turned to our little seven-year-old daughter and said, All of the others will cling to a rope but you will need to hold on to your daddy. Sit behind me. Put your arms around me and hold me tightly while I hold the rope. That we did. We crossed those steep, rough rapids, hanging on for dear life, and all of us made it safely. Brothers and sisters, I nearly lost my life learning a lesson that I now give to you. As we go through life, even through very rough waters, a father's instinctive impulse to cling tightly to his wife or to his children may not be the best way to accomplish his objective. Instead, if he will lovingly cling to the Savior and the iron rod of the gospel, his family will want to cling to him and to the Savior. This lesson is surely not limited to fathers. Regardless of gender, marital status, or age, individuals can choose to link themselves directly to the Savior, hold fast to the rod of His truth, and lead by the light of that truth. By so doing, they become examples of righteousness to whom others will want to cling. With the Lord, families are essential. He created the earth that we could gain physical bodies and form families. He established His Church to exalt families. He provides temples so that families can be together forever. Of course, He expects fathers to preside over, provide for, and protect their families. But the Master has asked for much more. Etched in sacred scripture is a commandment to set in order thy house. Once we as parents understand the importance and meaning of that commandment, we need to learn how to do it. 
to set our house in an order pleasing to the Lord. We need to do it His way. We are to employ His attributes of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Each father should remember that no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness, meekness, and by love unfeigned. Parents are to be living examples of kindness and pure knowledge which greatly enlarge the soul. Each mother and father should lay aside selfish interests and avoid any thought of hypocrisy, physical force, or evil speaking. Parents soon learn that each child has an inborn yearning to be free. Each individual wants to make his or her own way. No one wants to be restrained even by a well-intentioned parent. But all of us can cling to the Lord. Ages ago, Job taught that concept. He said, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. Nephi also taught, Whoso would hearken unto the word of God and hold fast unto it would never perish. These tenets are timeless as the gospel and endless as eternity. Ponder these additional scriptural admonitions. From the Old Testament Proverbs we read, Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. From the New Testament, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. From the Book of Mormon, we learn about multitudes who were continually holding fast to the rod of iron, likening it to the Word of God. Anchored in truth, that iron rod is immovable and immutable. Not only are parents to cling to the Word of the Lord, but they have a divine mandate to teach it to their children. Scriptural direction is very clear. Inasmuch as parents have children in Zion that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. That commandment places responsibility and accountability for the teaching of children squarely upon the shoulders of the parents. The proclamation to the world regarding the family warns that individuals who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Today I solemnly reaffirm that reality. In discharging these duties, we need both the Church and the family. They work hand-in-hand to strengthen each other. The Church exists to exalt the family, and the family is the fundamental unit of the Church. These interrelationships are evident as we study the early history of the Church. In 1833, the Lord rebuked young leaders of His Church because of parental shortcomings. The Lord said, 
I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. But verily I say unto you, You have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments. And now a commandment I give unto you, You shall set in order your own house, for there are many things that are not right in your house. First, set in order thy house. This revelation represents one of the many powerful validations of the integrity of the Prophet Joseph Smith. He did not delete from Scripture words of stinging rebuke, even though some were directed to himself. In our day, the First Presidency has again stressed parental priority. From their recent letter to the Saints, I quote, We call upon parents to devote their best efforts to the teaching and rearing of their children in gospel principles, which will keep them close to the Church. The home is the basis of a righteous life, and no other instrumentality can take its place or fulfill its essential functions in carrying forward this God-given responsibility. With this sacred charge in mind, let us consider what we should teach. Scriptures direct parents to teach faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Parents are to teach the plan of salvation and the importance of living in complete accord with the commandments of God. Otherwise, their children will surely suffer in ignorance of God's redeeming and liberating law. Parents should also teach by example how to consecrate their lives using their time, talents, tithing, and substance to establish the Church and Kingdom of God upon the earth. Living in that manner will literally bless their posterity. As Scripture states, Thy duty is unto the Church forever, and this because of thy family. Parents and children should realize that strong opposition will always come against the work and will of the Lord. Because the work and glory of God is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life as a family, it logically follows that the work of the adversary will strike directly at the heart of the home, the family. Relentlessly, Lucifer attacks the sanctity of life and the joy of parenthood. Because the evil one is ever at work, our vigilance cannot be relaxed, not even for a moment. A small and seemingly innocent invitation can turn to a tall temptation which can lead to tragic transgression. Night and day, at home or away, we must shun sin and hold fast that which is good. The seditious evils of pornography, abortion, and addiction to harmful substances serve as termites to erode the undergirding strength 
of a happy home and a faithful family. We cannot yield to any iniquity without putting our families at risk. Satan wants us to be miserable just as he is. He would animate our carnal appetites, entice us to live in spiritual darkness and doubt the reality of life after death. The Apostle Paul observed, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. An understanding of God's great plan of happiness, however, fortifies our faith in the future. His plan provides answers to ageless questions. Are all our sympathies and love for each other only temporary, to be lost in death? No. Can family life endure beyond this period of mortal probation? Yes. God has revealed the eternal nature of celestial marriage and the family as the source of our greatest joy. Brethren and sisters, material possessions and honors of the world do not endure. But your union as wife, husband, and family can. The only duration of family life that satisfies the loftiest longings of the human soul is forever. No sacrifice is too great to have the blessings of an eternal marriage. To qualify, one needs only to deny oneself of ungodliness and honor the ordinances of the temple. By making and keeping sacred temple covenants, we evidence our love for God, for our companion, and our real regard for our posterity, even those yet unborn. Our family is the focus of our greatest work and joy in this life. So will it be throughout all eternity when we can inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, dominions, exaltation, and glory. These priceless blessings can be ours if we set our houses in order now and faithfully cling to the gospel. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. This is His Church. President Gordon B. Hinckley is His prophet. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As parents and leaders of youth, it might be easy to lose our faith and wring our hands with worry for them and the world they're living in. Our circumstances today are not without precedence or hope. When Enoch was the prophet, the heavens wept because of the wickedness of the world. There is no doubt the heavens are weeping today. Elisha the prophet was surrounded by the whole Syrian army determined to kill him. He reassured his worried and only companion, who was busy counting Syrian heads, that when we are on the Lord's side, regardless of numbers or worldly power, we are in the majority. I testify 
that the consoling words of Elisha to his young friend are still true today. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. The Lord will surround and protect our young people with chariots of fire, as He did for Elisha, in the form of parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, leaders, and friends who will vigorously love them and lead them. The past four years I have been immersed in the work of young women. As we cross the world visiting with them, we learn to some degree about their hopes and dreams and fears and disappointments. I echo President Hinckley's words, this is the best generation the Church has ever had. As a whole, these young people are valiantly and energetically taking a stand for goodness and decency. Strong and good as they are, our young people need our help. And help is available. The Young Women Personal Progress Program, the Aaronic Priesthood Duty to God, the Guidebook for Parents and Leaders, and the Revised for the Strength of Youth will help parents and leaders be actively and directly involved in holding back the sliding scale of morality. Our youth want more than landlords. They want people who will love them and lead them. A vital part of that loving is listening. I know what listening really is because I have had the blessed experience. I used to farm with my dad. I didn't always enjoy it, but when lunchtime came, we'd sit in the shade of the tall poplar trees, eat our lunch, and talk. My dad didn't use this as a golden teaching moment to lay down the law and straighten out his daughter. We just talked about anything and everything. This was the time I could ask questions. I felt so safe I could even ask questions that might provoke him. I remember asking him, Why did you embarrass me in front of my friends last week when I'd stayed out too late and you came and got me? His answer leads to another aspect of love. He wasn't being arbitrary. There were certain standards of behavior I was expected to live. He said, Having you out late worried me. Above all, I want you safe. I realized his love for me was stronger than his desire for sleep or the inconvenience of getting dressed and driving down the road looking for me. Whether it's a hayfield or other casual places, those times together can fill the reservoir for other times that may not be as idyllic and serene. Relationships stay intact with this kind of investment in spite of hard doctrine and correction, or maybe because of it. Love is listening when they are ready to talk. Midnight, 6 a.m. on their way to seminary, or when you're busy with your urgencies. Have you seen the church spot on television showing a darkened bedroom? The door opens and in walks a little girl with a book under her arm. She goes over to where her dad is sound asleep and asks, Daddy, will you read me a story? The dad doesn't open his eyes. He just mumbles in his sleep, Oh, honey. Daddy is so tired. Ask Mommy. The little girl patters over to where her mother is sleeping and asks, Mommy, can Daddy read me a story? <laughs> you see the dad's eyes pop open, and the next picture shows all three of them together, and Dad is reading a story. Loving may come naturally, 
But leading is a polished skill that maybe we don't take seriously enough. We lead by example more strongly than any other way. That is a heavy burden for parents and leaders of youth. Can our young people tell by the way we live and talk and pray that we love the Lord? Do they know that their Father in Heaven is a God of love by the way they feel when they are with us? Can they feel secure that we will not be moved by every wind of doctrine or the craftiness of social pressure and worldly acceptance? If we are going to lead in righteousness, there can't be any question where we stand. Small uncertainties on our part can produce large uncertainties in our youth. I wonder sometimes if we as mothers are the ones who make our children feel the pressure to be popular and accepted. Educating our desires so our standards are the Lord's standards sends a clear message that in the Lord's kingdom there are no double standards. Following President Hinckley's talk to the youth last November, a young woman reported to her mother that her young woman leader had removed her second set of earrings. These scrutinizing young people notice. They notice how short your shorts are, if you had to tuck and pin to wear that blouse. They notice what you wear or don't wear when you are working in your yard. They notice which line you are standing in the movie theater. We have made covenants with the Lord, and leading often tests the level of our commitment to those covenants. A young mother said, It takes an enormous amount of time and energy to be a good parent. It's easier to let my children fall asleep in front of the television while I pick up the house and then put them to bed than it is to read to them the scriptures, have prayers and stories, and tuck them in. But they look forward to this evening ritual. And I know this investment, even when I'm too tired to move, will pay eternal dividends. Consistent leading helps youth make wise choices, and our trust in them increases. I remember when I was about 16 years old overhearing Mom talking to Dad. She was concerned about some choices I was making. I wasn't guilty of any serious sin more than the immaturity of youth, but Mom was worried. What Dad said seared into my heart. Don't worry, he said to Mom. I trust Sharon, and I know she'll do the right thing. Those hours in the hayfield paid off then and there. From that moment on, I was bound to those loving, trusting parents. One of the greatest tests for parents and leaders is to love the one who seems to be unlovable. This is tough duty. It stretches the heartstrings and wrenches the soul. When heartbroken parents pray for help, the help often comes in the form of angel, aunts or uncles, grandmas or grandpas, good friends and leaders surrounding our loved one. They can reinforce our very message that may put our child on the track we have been praying for. Loving wisely and leading purposefully will help stem the tide of wickedness as we prepare the next generation for the exhilarating delights of parenthood. We never forget the joys of our 12-year-old when he first passes the sacrament or hearing the sacramental prayer given in the voice of our son. How do you explain the feeling of hearing your daughter bear her testimony of the Savior or watching her receive her young womanhood medallion? We catch a glimpse of heaven when we are in the temple with our child who is kneeling across the altar with a worthy companion. 
They're prepared to start a life together of promise and accomplishments that we have helped to nurture. This is harvest time. I close with my testimony that we are not alone in this sacred trust of parenting, loving, and leading. There is no greater joy. It is worth every sacrifice, every inconvenient minute, every ounce of patience, personal discipline, and endurance. If God be for us, who can be against us? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A man of wisdom often offered this simple piece of advice. David, stand tall. My dad did not expect that I would add inches to my stature or rise up on my tiptoes. He meant that I should be courageous in my decision, not compromising principles, not violating spiritual values, and not shrinking from responsibility. When I have followed his advice, life has been very good. When I have failed to stand tall, life has usually been unpleasant. I recently asked my two young grandsons what it would mean to them if Heavenly Father asked them to stand tall. I noticed one inadvertently raised himself to his tippy toes so as to seem a little taller, and then they quickly said in unison, He wants us to do what is right. Out of the deep anguish and turmoil of September 11th have come many instances of men, women, and nations standing tall. Foes and friends have come together against a common enemy. Uncommon acts of bravery have become commonplace. Humanitarian response seems to know no bounds. Men and women, regardless of race or creed, have reached out to victims and their families. Countless prayers have been offered. The forces for good are standing tall against the forces of terror and senseless mayhem. It is said that a fence-sitter eventually has to come down on one side or the other. If we're sitting on the top of life's fences, now is the time to muster the courage to stand tall on the side of righteousness and shun the shackles of sin. The life, ministry, and teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ provide a template for introspective assessment. Jesus Christ is our perfect example of one who always stood tall. He is the one who personifies integrity, strength, and courage. After his baptism, Jesus was prompted to remove himself to commune with his Father. For forty days he chose not to eat in order that his mortal body might be subjected to his divine spirit in this weakened state. He was visited by the tempter who suggested that the Savior use his great power to perform extraordinary feats. To the tempter's request that he turn stones to bread to relieve his hunger, the Savior stood tall by replying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. To the notion that he throw himself from a high place to be saved by the hands of angels, he triumphantly stated, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And to the proposition that the Savior fall on his knees and worship the devil in exchange for the wealth and splendor of earthly glory, he valiantly replied, 
Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The tempter's insidious ways continue unabated. The quest for things has enticed some to depart from principle. Failure to distinguish between needs and wants has muddied men's minds. Families are starving for affection, recognition, and leadership of parents. Many are resorting to unethical, immoral, and on occasion illegal methods to acquire more and more material goods. If you find yourself entrapped in the pursuit of material things, now is the time to courageously stand tall. If you worship the money or worship the items that money can buy more than you cherish the love of God, now is the time to stand tall. If you have been blessed with abundance beyond your needs, now is the time to stand tall in sharing with those whose needs remain unfulfilled. On one occasion, the Savior called together his followers and said, Hear and understand not that which goeth into the mouth defile a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. As a normal part of everyday language, many people take the name of God in vain. Among our youth, vulgar and crude terms seem to come easily as they describe their feelings. My young friends, now is the time to stand tall in eliminating these words from your vocabulary. You know the words to which I refer. Unfortunately, you hear them used over and over again in your schools, in your music, in your sports. Will it take courage to stand tall? Of course it will. Can you muster the courage? Of course you can. Seek strength from your Heavenly Father to overcome it. The Savior said, Pray always, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you, and great shall be your blessing. It has been said, You reach the greatest heights while on your knees. Profanity and crudeness do not exalt, they defile. My wife and I have attended hundreds of youth sporting events. Too often we hear profanity expressed by coaches and other adults who should be role models. Adults need to stand tall in eliminating crude and profane language. You've heard the phrase, Your actions speak so loudly I cannot hear your words. Our actions indeed speak volumes about us. We need to stand tall in following the counsel of the prophets to attire ourselves modestly. Immodest clothing includes short shorts and skirts, tight-fitting, form-fitting clothes, shirts that don't cover the stomach, and other revealing attire. Clothing that is modest, neat, and clean uplifts. Immodest clothing degrades. If there is any question, ask yourself, would I feel comfortable with my appearance if I were in the Lord's presence? Mothers, you can be our examples in conscience in this important matter. But remember, young people can detect hypocrisy as easily as they can smell the wonderful aroma of freshly baked bread. Parents, counsel your sons and daughters, and then join with them in standing tall against immodesty. You'll recall that in response to the liar's question about who is our neighbor, the Savior recounted that a certain man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among thieves and was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. 
The first to come his way was a priest who looked away and passed on the other side of the road. Likewise, the next to discover his plight stopped to look but passed without rendering aid. The third, a Samaritan, bound up his wounds and made arrangements for his care. Then Jesus asked, Which of them was the neighbor? The liar responded that the neighbor was he who showed mercy. In response, the Savior said, Go and do thou likewise. As we reach out to our neighbors, are we sensitive not only to their needs but also to their feelings? Is our neighborliness selective and confined to those of our faith? Or is it all-inclusive regardless of faith, color, or any other perceived differences? To the Savior, there was no reservation in the definition of neighbor. Sometimes our unique Church language can be misinterpreted and appear insensitive or even condescending to our neighbors. As Elder Ballard suggested yesterday, I too feel uncomfortable with the term non-member. When we refer to others as non-members, they might wonder if we feel they are not members of our community, our city, or even the human race. We are quick to say we are accepting and inclusive of, in our neighborly relationships, but to some we too often come across as merely tolerating. Love of neighbor comes only after love of self and God. A dear family friend passed away a few years ago. He and his wife enjoyed hiking together in the mountains. One fall afternoon, they hiked several miles up a steep mountainside to a beautiful waterfall. While descending the trail, several hikers making the climb upward asked the question, Is it worth it? Our friend's reply was always in the affirmative. Later, they observed that the effort was worth it only if you enjoyed the fresh air, alpine beauty, exercise, and loving companionship. Feeling the intense pressure from peers and the need to be accepted, some may ask the question, Is it worth the effort to stand tall? To that question, I respond, If celestial life eternal is important to you, and if you want to experience real joy in this life, then standing tall is worth the determination and tireless daily effort it requires. May we all stand tall on the side of righteousness, I pray in the sacred name of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.